Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, but you can call me Mike. My guest today is journalist Sebastian Strangio, who focuses on Southeast Asia. Sebastian earned his BA and MA in international politics at the University of Melbourne, where he began his career as a journalist, co-editing the student paper. Since 2008, his pieces on Southeast Asia have been published in Foreign Policy, The New York Times, The Economist, The New Republic, Forbes, Al Jazeera, The Atlantic, The Phnom Penh Post, and many other publications. In addition to living and working in Cambodia and Thailand, he has reported from the various ASEAN nations, Russia, South Korea, and Bangladesh. His first book, Hun Sen's Cambodia, was published by Yale University Press and Silkworm Books in 2014. It was named as one of 2015's Books of the Year by Foreign Affairs. Yale University Press has just issued a revised and updated paperback edition of the book under the title Cambodia from Pol Pot to Hun Sen and Beyond. In addition to his journalism, Sebastian is a commentator on politics in Cambodia and Myanmar, and his views have been quoted in the New York Times, The Guardian, Le Monde, the Associated Press, Reuters, Agence France Press, and elsewhere. He's consulted for the, uh, the Economist Intelligence Unit, is a fellow with the International Reporting Project, and has been a uh, research fellow for the Future Forum, a policy institute in Phnom Penh. He is also the Southeast, Southeast Asia editor for The Diplomat, where I have had the honor of trying my hand at journalism. Today we'll be discussing Sebastian's newest book, In the Dragon's Shadow, Southeast Asia and the Chinese Century, published by Yale University Press in August 2020. Sebastian Strongio, welcome to New Books in History. Thanks for having me, Mike. So it's, um, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Um, I've been following your work for years. Uh, when I was living in Cambodia and Indonesia, I greatly appreciated your reporting and your analysis of the region. And I also admire your books because they're truly scholarly endeavors with excellent uh, secondary research to back up your reportage. But before we get into the book, uh, which, which I loved, uh, please tell us how you became a specialist in Southeast Asian politics. I'm always curious as to what drew Southeast Asianists to specialize in this region that I'm so enamored with. Yeah, it's, I think, you know, I probably would draw it back to, you know, the first trip I did to Southeast Asia as a, you know, as a student, you know, I went backpacking around as a lot of people do. And I became absolutely fascinated with um, the history of Indochina, particularly. Um, and, you know, it, it's a sort of, in some ways, sort of a typical story. You know, um, I, I began to specialize in all of those sorts of things at university, my university studies. I was doing history um, through my BA um, at, at the University of Melbourne. And, you know, it sort of just drew me, um, you know, drew me into the subject. And then when I, you know, when I graduated, I had a real desire to get over there and, and you know, um, spend some time in the region. Um, and, and I started, um, you know, if I could have gone to Vietnam and, and, and done proper journalism in Vietnam, I probably would have. That was the country that, that attracted me most strongly. But I instead ended up going to Cambodia, where the UN mission of the early 90s had sort of carved out a space for, um, for independent press. And so I was able to get my start in journalism in, a, you know, in, in an environment that I'd you know, always, or you know, in a country that I'd always been fascinated with. Yeah. What, what um, year was it that you landed in, uh, in Phnom Penh? 2008. 2008, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, from there, I just sort of, you know, I, I sort of focused on my journalism in Cambodia. And then after a few years, I began traveling the region more widely and sort of just following 
intellectual threads, uh, you know, and, and interests um, in, in any direction, really, that, that, um, that I chose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, now, so the, the, book's, the book's laid out in a very clear fashion. Um, the first two chapters discuss China's relationship to Southeast Asia as a whole, and um, I greatly appreciated chapter two, which gives the, the history of China's century-long march towards the tropics, as you call it. Um, could you please give us an introduction to this history of China's long relationship with uh, the Southeast Asian region? Oh, yeah, well, for centuries, the two regions have been bound together by, by ties of trade and tribute and, and uh, movements of people backwards and forwards. Um, I do think it's important to you know, recognize that even though mainland Southeast Asia and China you know, share a border on maps today, you know, historically, this was far from the case. And the centers of Chinese power or the, the power of the various empires and dynasties that occupied the territory of um, present-day China we're very far away. Um, there, you know, this was the southern parts of today's China and the northern parts of mainland Southeast Asia are incredibly rugged. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's incredibly rugged terrain, very difficult to traverse over land. Um, and so, you know, the, the, I mean, these are these are the extensions of the Great Himalayan Mountains. I mean, it's just it's it's next to impossible to move through this area, right? Right, right. I mean, there was there was a certain degree of overland trade and contact, but you know these were very hardy mule traders and and you know people who trickled down through the mountains into the you know the present day um, what is now Thailand and Myanmar and Laos to trade um, their various goods. But you know, really, the you know the main um, interaction with China came by by sea, maritime trade. Um, but so so to come back to the you know the idea of China's sort of slow move southward. I mean, if we look at, you know, the long sweep of Chinese history, we see a sort of southward drift that is, you know, that some historians have, have compared to the Western movement in American history or the Eastern movement um, of the Russian empire. Um, and I think there's, you know, the, the main reason for this, I think, is that, you know, the main security threats of the Chinese various imperial states that existed in China um, was to the north. It was the steppe you know, that the steppes and the, the people that inhabited them, fearsome nomadic warriors like the Mongols and the Manchus, who traditionally posed an existential threat to, to the various dynasties um, of imperial China. And so, um, you know, while there was sort of, you know, this constant beady um, attention directed toward the north, you know, toward the south, there was really no powerful um, state that could, or, or, you know, warrior people that could sort of inhibit um, the, the, um, the slow southward move of, of, of the Chinese people and Chinese civilization and the China in the various imperial administrative states. And so very slowly, you know, um, you know, the, the, the ambit of the, you know, um, the various Chinese dynasties began to stretch, um, began to move further and further south, bringing it into contact with peoples and kingdoms that, you know, um, that occupy the areas we now know as um, mainland Southeast Asia. Um, it's also true that, you know, this, when Western empires conquered, uh, you know, what is now mainland Southeast Asia and established, you know, imperial outposts there, um, China's southward momentum continued in the form of um, large-scale immigration from southern China into parts of Southeast Asia and indeed further, further afield. Um, and, you know, I think that what I argue in that second chapter of the book is what we're seeing now is really after a sort of a century or a century and a half in which Western power 
halted um, this southward momentum, we're starting to see the resumption of that southward drift. Um, right. You know, in the term of right. I- in different forms, you know, in the form of Chinese capital immigration, um, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, ec- its economic influence throughout the region, and and infrastructure plans, of course. And this is one of the main enabling sort of um, uh, factors in this this renewed push to the south. I mean, we have, you know, the the, the mountains and forests that I talked about before that once kept the China, you know, the Chinese state at arm's length, you know, that have been breached by new networks of um, railways, highways, special economic zones that have um, opened the Mekong region, the mainland Southeast Asia, to a transformative southward sweep of Chinese immigration and investment. And, you know, what you really see in the region today is the the economic gravity of, of mainland Southeast Asia, which was once... Um, you know, oriented toward the south, toward the the the, um, the coastal ports that provided the region's outlets to you know the global maritime trade, now reorienting to the toward the north to at least to some extent. Um, northern parts of Myanmar and Laos are you know in some ways more better integrated with southern China than they are with with uh, other parts of their own con- uh, you know the countries to which they belong. So, what we uh, this is really an unprecedented historic transformation of the relation between China and Southeast Asia. But of course, it builds on old patterns and old um, modes of interaction. Right, right. And um, I, I would just note as a historian of imperialism in Southeast Asia, the drive of the British and the French into Southeast Asia was to get, find a backdoor to China. And so now what we're seeing is the, the reverse of that. Right, exactly. In the, inter, in, in the, in the introductory chapters, you also talk about... Um, contrasting China's engagement with Southeast Asia through the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, the Maritime Silk Road Project. Uh, You contrast that with Obama's pivot to Asia and Trump's sort of floundering and inconsistent Indo-Pacific term. How do these great powers differ in their relationship to Southeast Asia? And and what are China's current goals and security interests in the region as a whole before we get into the individual countries? And and, um, also, could you say a few words about your, your use of the term Great power autism, which I found sure. uh, really uh, insightful for looking at um, sort of blundering American and also Chinese foreign policy in the region. Sure. Uh, well, I think the main thing that distinguishes China from the United States is the brute fact of proximity. I mean, Southeast Asia is in China's backyard. Um, it is broadly comparable to the um, the Caribbean Sea uh, and 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 Latin America for the United States. So. You know, it's, it's natural that China will take a strong interest in Southeast Asia. You know, this is not surprising. Um, and that it would have, you know, you know a, a, a strong economic presence there, especially given the size of China's economy. Um, I think that, you know, in specific terms, Southeast Asia is important um, in some ways as an enabling region for China. I don't believe that it's the primary focus of, of Chinese foreign policy, um, but... I think, you know, if we consider Beijing's strategic uh, security dilemma, um, the fact that it is ringed by potential rivals, including um, nuclear armed states like uh, India and Russia, and then, of course, a string of U.S. treaty allies off its eastern coast, Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, and, of course, Taiwan, which is also very close to Washington, you know, you, you kind of begin to understand the, the feeling of constraint that Chinese strategists have always struggled with, you know, the sense that the U.S. is engineering a kind of an encirclement of China, a chain that is slowly um, strangling it. Southeast Asia, of course, is the one region where there isn't an incumbent great power. Um, 
it, you know, it, it is a region that is relatively amenable to the extension of Chinese influence. And I think that um, it is a place where Chinese strategists see that, you know, they are able to break that chain of encirclement um, to some extent. It's also an incredibly important region in terms of China's um, uh, economy. I mean, you know, the sea lanes that, that run through the island straits of Southeast Asia are, um, you know, a lifeline of the Chinese economy. It's China's, represents China's access to, the globe, uh, to global markets. And of course, it's access to sources of um, crude oil that are necessary to keep its economy moving along. And of course, all of this, move, a large proportion of this moves through the Malacca Strait between Indonesia and Malaysia, and thence through the South China Sea. Right. I mean, isn't, um, isn't the Malacca Strait like the, the second busiest uh, 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 waterway in terms of um, uh, petroleum transportation? Yeah, after the Strait of Hormuz. Um, and, you know, and about a third of global trade moves through the South China Sea. And so, you know, I think that, you know, China's claims over the South China Sea, even though they, you know, they're, they sort of embody nationalist myths, you know, you know, in some ways are sort of a product of China's, um, you know, remaking of itself as a modern state. There, there is also sort of a basic, you know, security consideration here as well, which is, you know, that, that you know, China doesn't trust the United States to ensure its continued access to, or, or to ensure freedom of navigation through these waters. And, and you know, and, and it fears that one day, a, you know, the United States or another power might seek to blockade China you know, by, so, so of course, controlling these waters is very important for the Chinese leadership. Um, in some ways, it's a prerequisite to the, the sort of ambitions, um, the regional and global ambitions that they have. Yeah, so and, what, and, next... yeah, well, what, are, what are the American, can you contrast that to America's interest in uh, yes, well, um, <clears throat> under Obama and under Trump? Well, so, you know, as I mentioned, you know, China is, you know, in, in some ways, a ge you know, geopolitical reality for Southeast Asia, it's always going to be there, whereas the United States is very far away. In some ways, its dominant presence in Southeast Asia is, a, is, is, his, his, is not only historically anonymous, an anomalous, um, it's, um, you know, it is, is something that is not, um, you know, it really requires constant renewal. Um, you know, there needs to be political will to maintain relationships in the region and to commit resources and to renew those commitments every four years. Um, you know, it, it's, and I think what we've, you know, um, you know, uh, there, there's a couple of other points of tension as well. I think that um, to come to this question of liberal great state autism, which is a phrase that I mm -hmm. borrow from the strategist Edward Lutwak, um, right. he, he makes the point that large states are often, you know, often have blindnesses that, that are, that result from their, uh, attempt to simplify the world and make it sort of processable by, you know, decision makers in, in capitals um, very far away from the, the countries with which they're concerned. Um, and I think we see, you know, Chinese and American variants of this. The Chinese variant of great state autism is this sort of inability to deal with any um, uh, group that lies outside the remit of the state. It's, it's, it's characterized by an inability to sort of understand why people might be uh, worried about Chinese investments or infrastructure projects um, and, and, you know, a, a sort of, yeah, and, and a blindness toward the sort of national pride of these smaller nations that, um, you know, um, that, that, that sort of stand in, in, in the path of China's, you know, um, achievement of national rejuvenation, as they put it. Um, the American variant, I think, is to view, you know, the world's 
you know, global events, but also in, in this case, um, events in Southeast Asia as sort of, you know, um, through the prism of its own sense of exceptionalism, you know, the idea that every nation is sort of un undergoing some kind of struggle to become more like the United States. And so, you know, whenever there's a change of government or some sort of democratic upsurge in, you know, in, in a, in, in a Southeast Asian country, it's very often interpreted in the US by both media and government as sort of um, evincing a, you know, a sort of in, a move, an inevitable shift towards sort of American values and institutions. Um, and I think this, you know, this pinpoints sort of one of the reasons, you know, America's, there's been a bit of ambivalence about the United States and Southeast Asia. I think that, um, you know, the attempts to sort of proselytize democratic values in Southeast Asia has, has created a lot of, uh, you know, um, has ex experienced a lot of nationalist backlash, you know? I mean, we can see, looking over the past couple of decades, you know, virtually every case where the United States or other Western countries have put pressure on Southeast Asian governments over questions of human rights or democratic principles, these nations have turned to China um, for diplomatic support and no strings financial support. Um, right. Hun Sen is maybe the, the best example of that, right? Of course. I mean, that's almost like the, you know, the, the, the prototypical example, you know, the most yeah. purely, um, you know, um, the, the, the sort of the pure case in the sense that Cambodia was, you know, the subject of a massive um, international democracy building mission. You know, and in my mind, it's no surprise that it's now become the most pro-Chinese state in the region for precisely that sort of those reasons that I outlined that this has really been a reaction to Western attempts to democratize Cambodia. And, and, you know, we could talk a little bit more about the, the ways that the Cambodian opposition, Hun Sen's domestic opponents have, have um, glommed onto this project in order to advance their own interests. Um, but, you know, uh, you know, this is, this is one of the sources of sort of friction with the United States and Southeast Asia. And I think that, you know, another concern is simply that, you know, America's Southeast Asia policy, this is more under Trump, has really existed downstream of its policy toward China. And so as, as you know, the Trump administration has become more and more belligerent toward China and, and began confronting it on all manner of issues, um, you know, its engagement with Southeast Asia now is framed purely in terms of China. And there's not a lot of sense that the, that the Trump administration is really listening to Southeast Asian governments or taking their national interests on board. And we see a sort of Trumpian variant of great state autism at play here too. Well, let's take a tour of the ASEAN nations. Um, as you do in the book, let's move through them one by one, starting with Vietnam, which has the longest historical relationship with China and actually has fought a war with China within uh, at least my lifetime. Um, talk about the relationship between China and Vietnam. The relationship between those two countries is characterized by a tense dialectic. You know, on the one hand, you know, Vietnam is in many ways, has been deeply, you know, imprinted by Chinese culture. You know, it, it is, you know, the, the Vietnamese um, emperors reproduced a lot of Chinese governing philosophies, um, you know, uh, imperial uh, ideologies, military technologies, social structures, uh, and moral philosophies. And, and you know, these things, um, you know, shaped Vietnam profoundly until the coming of the French course, you know, the, the Vietnamese literati can communicated with, the, with each other and using Chinese characters. You know, Vietnam is very much part of the Sinitic civilizational world. 
Um, but at the same time, it, you know, its history has been marked by fierce resistance to China. And the irony at, you know, at the heart of Vietnamese history is really that it was Chinese borrowings um, and inheritances that were the very tools that enabled Vietnam to remain independent of Chinese power. And so, you know, you, you see this sort of tense dialectic reproducing itself in the present. Um, another factor, of course, is the very close historical relationship between the two countries' communist parties. Um, you know, who share sort of ideological worldviews and, you know, a common interest in sort of staying out, out of the, the dustbin of history. Uh, and so, you know, these two parties, you know, despite all of the tensions that exist in the relationship are still, they still have a, you know, a, at least a degree of commonality in their interests. Um, but the problem for, you know, you know, the Vietnamese Communist Party finds itself in a very difficult situation because, you know, in many ways, the you know, Vietnamese nationalism, you know, it sort of um, defines itself in many ways against China. And if you speak to ordinary people in Vietnam, as I'm sure you know yourself, you know, the, the animosity toward Vietnam crosses every social and political divide in Vietnam. And animosity and, towards China. Oh, animosity towards yeah, China, yeah. yes, and yes. It, um, and 100%, I mean, it is, it is astounding to me. The first time I lived in Vietnam was in the mid-90s. And uh, as a, not the first batch of graduate students from the United States going in, but I was, you know, two, three years into the first batch. And I, you know, was nervous as a big American guy uh, about the legacy mm. of the war. And boy, they did not really care about that, but they had quite a few things to say about China. Yeah, yeah. And the yeah. xenophobia was just palpable. Yeah, and it's, it's even more interestingly, you know, it's a lot of the sort of democratic activists and dissidents who are among the most anti-Chinese um, that I've spoken to in Vietnam, which is, you know, just offers an interesting complication of sort of the, uh, you know, the, the, the idea that they're, you know, that they're, represent necessarily a liberal alternative. Um, but, you know, I think that the Vietnamese Communist Party finds itself in a very difficult situation. I mean, it relies on China for, um, you know, for its economy. You know, there's a heavy reliance on the importation of Chinese um, components, which go into the manufacture of a lot of, um, you know, the electronics and other goods that are manufactured in Vietnam and exported to world markets. Um, and, you know, there's a need for stability in the relationship for trade. Um, there's, uh, and, and, uh, but on the other hand, you know, the Vietnamese public is alert, is ever alert to any sign that, that the Chinese, uh, the Vietnamese leadership is selling out to Vietnam, uh, to China. And of course, there's been, you know, at the, at the, at the merest hint um, that, that Vietnamese sovereignty has been compromised by China, you know, people take to the streets. I mean, I think Vietnam is the one country where the South China Sea disputes mobilize genuine grassroots concern and opposition. Absolutely. I've, um, I've had it come up in casual conversation with friends in Hanoi. Yeah. And I mean, they were, you know, very, very angry about this and wanted to know, you know, what was my opinion on this? Mm. Yeah. Whereas in, oh. in, in Malaysia and the Philippines, they, they tend to be more minority concerns. It's, the, it's right. the security establishment that's concerned. And there are small, in the Philippines, there are groups of nationalists that do rally, um, you know, but we're talking about rallies that are planned that are relatively small and are relatively orderly. Whereas in Vietnam, you know, you have, you know, rioting and, and very, um, it can, it, things can be very volatile whenever right. China is concerned. And, and rioting is rather rare in communist Vietnam. But the, uh, just a few years ago, as you talk about, there were yeah. a series of attacks on Chinese owned businesses, which unfortunately they were uh, actually attacking Taiwanese owned businesses, not uh, PRC owned, but, um, that, that kind of expression of um, popular frustration and, and discontent is just so, 
so rare in Vietnam today. Yeah, yeah, and China is the one thing that that is almost guaranteed to set it off. Um, and so, yeah, of course, like as as one, um, you know, uh, Vietnamese National Assembly and put it to me, you know, the the Communist Party finds itself trapped between China and between the sentiments of the Vietnamese public, and mm-hmm. and it has to walk a very very narrow line in its relations with China. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What? So mo- moving on this tour, um, if we go a little to the west um, and Cambodia and Laos, which you, you put both of them in the same chapter. Um, what, what's going on with these two nations and their relationship with uh, the PRC, the People's Republic of China? Well, I'll start with Cambodia first. I yeah. think, um, you, know, you know, if we look at, um, you know, the, the, the animosity that you see in Vietnam toward China, you see mirrored in Cambodia toward the Vietnamese. Um, the, you know, historically, you, you know, Cambodians have not feared and, sus- you know, s- suspected China to the degree that their, their Vietnamese counterparts have. Um, Vietnam instead plays that role in the Cambodian nationalist right. imagination. And we, we can go way back in history. I mean, if we go to the Bayonne and uh, the Angkor complex, there's depictions of Chinese mercenaries serving alongside ethnic Khmer mercenaries against the, the Choms, right? I mean, there's- a, Right, right. And there's, there's I think also, yeah. So, so historically, you know, the, the main fear, um, the threat to Cambodian kingdom survival has always come from the, the, the powers to either side. And, and, right. In this case, you know, in modern terms, Siam or Thailand on the one side and Vietnam on the other. But of course, Vietnam, the Vietnamese border also represents, a, you know, an, 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 you know an, um, a linguistic fault line, a religious fault line, a cultural fault line that, that it, it doesn't quite apply in the case of Thailand. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, again, you, you don't have to scratch very deep in Cambodia to find the most virulent anti-Vietnamese sentiment. Yeah. Um, but what this means is that historically, Cambodian leaders have seen China as a distant protective figure. You know, it is not um, seen with the same degree of threat um, as it is for many of its neighbors. And so, uh, you know, th- there is a sort of historical background of accommodation of Chinese power. And, and you, know, you know, Western, as you know, Western visitors and scholars of Cambodia have, have noted, you know, for, for more than a century, you know, that, that Cambodia was a friendly place for ethnic Chinese. It, they were generally regarded um, well um, Ethnic Khmers eagerly intermarried with Chinese business people, and and of course, you know, the, the product of that is the the Sino-Khmer business elite that, that right, which do, such... do, dominated Phnom Penh uh, historically. Right. I mean, yeah, it really yeah. was a uh, a Sino-Khmer city. Yeah, yeah, um, and so you know, so that's you know the one aspect. The other aspect, of course, is has been this um, you know this the, the nation building or the democracy building project that I mentioned earlier that was initiated in the ni- early 1990s, and that. The, the, the government of Prime Minister Hun Sen has always sort of sought to struggle against. And I think that one of the, one of the sort of unique things about Cambodia since then is that the country is, you know, sort of been seen as relatively small and unimportant. I mean, in Western countries. Um, and, and it's a place where a lot of Western governments have sort of seen that they can take a, you know, a harder line on human rights issues because they don't perceive that there's really that much um, on the line. It's, it, it was, not a very strategically important country. It was sort of a place where we could stand on our principles. And that's, that's sort of the view of Cambodia that you see coming up again and again, often between the lines of, you know, um, in how Western governments have engaged with it. And of course, Prime Minister Hun Sen has, has fought for his, his whole career to sort of free himself of this, this burden uh, of being a democratic project. And, and of course, the, he's turned toward China in order to provide, you know, the sort of, aid and support that the Western governments and Japan once did, but 
without all of the, what he perceives to be onerous conditions about good governance and, and, um, uh, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, that project has, has further sort of incentivized a, a, the country's or the government's move toward China and its heavy dependence upon it. Um, in Laos, you know, we see some similar patterns. Um, you know, Laos is very often forgotten. Uh, compared to Cambodia is, is, um, is rarely mentioned in the press and it's a very repressive country, but it, you know, it never comes under as much pressure as the Cambodian government comes under in terms of its, you know, treatment of its own people. Um, but, you know, in Laos, you have a government, well, firstly, you have a nation that was basically, you know, imagined and constructed by the French, mm-hmm. um, to yeah. an extent that, that Cambodia wasn't Cambodia. There was a sort of, I mean, it can get difficult when we start talking about the origins of nations. is a very compl- complex issue, but yeah. there was <laughs> and, certainly... And a, politi- a political third rail in, in, in Cambodia. Totally, um, yeah. But, but um, Penny, Penny Edwards, um, uh, UC Berkeley, has a, uh, an amazing book called Cambodge, Cultivation of mm-hmm. a Nation, where she makes the argument you make about Laos that mm-hmm. yeah, the French colonialism really did create yeah. this nation state, but, um, but point taken. So, so Laos is this somewhat artificial creation. There isn't... A yeah. historic nation state. Yeah, I mean, I think in, in the case of Laos, it was almost like a, you know, a ge- like geographically put it together in a yeah. sense, you know, they united three Lao kingdoms um, and, and, and sort of called the country Laos, which was a, you know, sort of a, you know, a relative, um, you know, hadn't really existed in those terms. Um, of course, you know, every nation in Southeast Asia underwent that process and, and of, of sort of imagining a nation and bringing it into being um, from the rudiments of pre-colonial, you know, kingdoms and heritages and, and so forth. Um, but it really, you know, it, it's a country that's always sort of been very weak around its periphery. You know, it's not a, a nation that's, you know, that's ever really been in full control of its, of its territory and it's, or it's been very vulnerable to, in, you know, encroachments from the outside. So, of course, during the Vietnam War, Laos was was powerless to stop the Viet Cong from using its eastern provinces, you know, um, to supply its troops in the south. And, and of course, there was a large um, Vietnamese communist presence in the northeast of the country. Um, and, of course, the Americans also um, breached Laos's neutrality at will um, in pursuit of the chimeric victory in Vietnam. So, um, uh so there, there, there's always been a sense that its borders have sort of been porous. And, and what we see that now in the case of China as well, you know, that, that um, the government that runs the country has been very willing to sort of um, take a lot of money from China um, and, you know, in large part to sort of, yeah, and, and, and allow Chinese enterprises to develop, you know, remote regions of the country. Right. So what, what are some of those development projects that uh, China's been engaging in? I mean, there's the projects on the Mekong and then there's... Uh, shall we say the entertainment industry? Right, right. Well, this is yeah. This is the thing. Special economic zones in in far flung regions of the country, um, most of which, well, some of which have been based around gambling, um, which is something we've seen in in large, you know, other parts of mainland Southeast Asia as well. Um, but um, so there's the the project in Boten in the early 2000s that was handed over and turned into a very briefly burned very brightly as a, a as a gambling hub on the Chinese border before yeah, for, for, um, for Chinese nationals for Chinese nationals. Right, correct. Right. And, and they, um, that was shut down uh, under Chinese pressure in 2011 and it's since returned. Um, gambling is no longer permitted there, but it's, you know, it's, it's now like it is the future crossing point of the um, high speed railway that is now under um, 
construction running from the border of Yunnan province to the Lao capital Vientiane. Um, and, 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 you know, and eventually beyond uh, to Bangkok and, and the dream is uh, Kunming to Singapore, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and this, this is, you know, another echo of colonial or uh, mm-hmm. Western imperial ambition, you know, we, you know, the, the British had, had also sought to create that link and, and, you know, laid out plans for the construction of railways, which never ended up being built. Um, but, you know, what we see with a place like Boten is really, you know, what I discussed earlier, the, the, the way that infrastructure is sort of reconfiguring the geography of this region. I mean, Boten was once the middle of nowhere. I mean, it took two days to travel from Vientiane to Boten. And then when you got there, you wondered why, you, why, why you'd come. Um, because getting from, you know, the Chinese border to any significant settlement or any like large city, again, took, you know, a huge amount of time. I mean, Southern Yunnan was a very difficult place to travel before the, the, the current age of, you know, uh, superhighways. And so, but all of a sudden, you know, it's become this sort of hub in the middle of nowhere. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, another project we might discuss is the Golden Triangle Special Economic Zone, which has been um, established on the Laos side of the tri-border confluence. And, you know, right where the three borders mm-hmm. of Laos, Thailand, and Myanmar meet. Um, and that's been handed over to a fairly obscure and shadowy Chinese um, businessman by the name of Zhao Wei. To, who's built sort of this, this miniature gambling empire in the middle of the, you know, um, palm trees and rice paddies, is, you know, and that again caters mostly to mainland Chinese visitors. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, it exists in sort of a, uh, you know, a, the interstices of state power, you know, the golden triangle has always been a sort of, um, you know, a place a, a sort of place that exists beyond the law of lowland states. And this is per- perpetuating itself now, except that ethnic Chinese are, or Chinese nationals are sort of playing a more and more prominent role mm. in the, the illicit trades of the region. But, you know, to come back to Laos, I mean, I think that, you know, one thing that is united, that, that the common point between Laos and Cambodia is they're both relatively small nations. They're both governed by um, corrupt governments that are, you know, really, you know, ha- seeking to preserve themselves in power and Chinese, Chinese money is very useful in that regard. Um, and they're both countries that, you know, in their modern histories of both, they have, a, they, they have um, histories of dependence, you know, on outside patrons. And so choosing China as, as a powerful uh, supporter um, is not, you know, an, you know, is not a significant break with that, with that pattern yeah, right, of interaction with the outside world. And so, you know, choosing, in fact, choosing a patron could even be seen as a, a form of agency. Um, and, and obviously in, in the case of the two countries, you know, what they've looked for in terms of a patron has been slightly different in Cambodia. There's been a sort of a political ideological element to things, which is that prime minister Hun Sen has wanted an alternative patron that doesn't attach liberal conditions to, um, funding. Whereas Laos has come under generally come under less pressure than Cambodia has in that regard, but both, you know, want, um, you know, both see Chinese largesse as a way of, you know, maintaining their hold on power. Yeah. But do, do you think that these um, development projects like the uh, high-speed rail or the planned um, uh, freeways, uh, expressways uh, through Laos will actually benefit Laos? Or will it be like here in California, the Central Valley, where you just blow through towns in the Central Valley and don't stop there? Yeah, I mean, it's really, you know, it, it's, it's a very important question. Um, you know, I mean, there were similar criticisms made about China's high-speed rail network when it was being constructed two or three decades, well, probably, yeah, two decades ago. 
Um, so it really remains to be seen. I mean, the big question is whether the Thais agree to the extension of this rail line through Thailand. So that, you know, at the moment, the Thai government is, is just okay to sort of, um, uh, I think about 250 kilometers up to the Korat Plateau, but they haven't formally agreed to extending this all the way to Vientiane and connecting up with the, the rail line through Laos. If they don't end up building that, then Laos is going to be, you know, pretty much be a train to nowhere. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, also a train that's a project that saddled the Lao government with a, you know, a hefty amount of debt, even though China's paying for the bulk of it. Um, you know, I think that this is a project that very much serves Chinese interests first. Um, but the Lao government is, you know, again, has got its own reasons for, um, for greenlighting it, um, which, you know, may not be uh, um, based on the economic utility of this project. That's a good way to channel funds into individual accounts. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, what about the development projects on the Mekong, the dams and the hydroelectric uh, plants? I mean, these, yes, well... On the one hand, these, these offer power to the region, but on the other hand, they're completely disrupting uh, the Mekong. Right, well, I mean, we can talk about two things. So the first thing is, is China's cascade of dams on the upper Mekong within China's territory. And these things have been... They've been, the first one came online, I think in 1994, and, and since then 10 more of these large dams have been built. Um, you know, and recent evidence suggests that, that these dams are, are holding back a significant amount of water. And that, you know, when the, when the downstream nations are facing droughts, you know, to a large extent, the, the hoarding of water within the, these dam reservoirs, you know, uh, at least recently um, has been partly to blame. Um, this gives China a huge amount of leverage over the downstream nations. I mean, really, it controls the, 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 downward, the downstream flow of a life-giving resource upon which tens of millions of people in the Mekong region rely. Um, uh, you know, then there's the question of the dams being built on the Mekong and its tributaries in the, in the Southeast Asian nations themselves, of which China has been a, an important partner. So, um, you know, Laos has built, I believe, one... Uh, actually, they have had several planned. I think there's one under construction and one that's been finished on the, the mainstream of the Mekong. Um, I could be wrong. I'd have to look at my notes. But the, the Lao government has, has put a lot of its chips on hydropower as a way of um, uh, sort of creating, yeah, as, as a comparative advantage. I mean, it does have these like fast flowing deep rivers um, that course through its territory and that could you know, uh, it's an important potential source of foreign exchange for the Lao government, you know. Um, but the, the impacts in terms of, you know, um, damaging fish stocks and um, undermining the ecology of the Mekong region could, could exact a, a much more serious cost in the long run. Yeah, and the, I think this the, is something... The, the cycles that, of agriculture, especially down in the, uh, the Mekong Basin and Cambodia and the Tongan Right. Side, yeah, of course. experiencing and, and, terrible droughts now and you know, for s centuries, millennia have relied on that, f the flood of the Mekong. And now that's not happening in the same, the same manner. Yeah. They can't rely on it anymore. And, and, you know, we're seeing record low fish catches um, and, you know, parts of the Mekong that have, that have dried up, you know, and, and the, the riverbeds have been exposed to the sun, you know, I mean, really, you know, we're seeing, you know, a very serious situation on the Mekong river. And this is something that, you know, um, is going to really hurt, um, particularly the, Viet the, the, the Delta in Vietnam, um, which, you know, is, is the most, in some ways, 
the least amenable to hydropower generation. So Vietnam gets none of the benefits of, of generating power from its, its stretches of the river, um, yet bears a lot of the costs. And of course, they also intersect with, you know, increasing salination in the Mekong Delta and over-cultivation of, of the land there, other problems that are, are further exacerbating the problems caused by the dams. So, yeah, it's a very situ- serious situation. And, um, you know, it's hard to see where things go from here. Right. So I um, just want to circle back around a little bit more to Cambodia at a couple of follow-up uh, points. Um, so, uh, yes, absolutely. I agree. The, um, the, 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 in Cambodia, the tension between the Khmer population and the Vietnamese population uh, that's there is very, very strong, right. And, and really palpable, but just in the past two, three years um, in my time in Cambodia, I've seen this rise in popular Sinophobia, particularly mm-hmm. on social media and particularly uh, regarding rumors about Chinookville and yeah. what what Chinese development and Chinese gamblers have done and are doing in in Chinookville, and um, I, I've I've been there a number of times over the years. I you know, remember the glory days when it was a backpack haven, and then yeah, it was always kind of pretty seedy. Like I was one of the places I was most uncomfortable in Cambodia the first time when it was sort of the the dodge, yeah. uh degenerate uh, sex pat scene uh, going on there. That was disturbing and then when i returned um uh just about a year and a half ago and i think i actually may have been there the the same points you talk about in the book i think it was Mm. in uh, december of 2018 or uh thereabout um we were there and it was just it uh was stunning the amount of sudden development yeah incredible high rises going in but with no infrastructure and it was very different than chinese development which i've seen in in the prc where an area is leveled then the, the sewers are laid, the roads are laid, and then the mm. towers go in. Here, the towers are going in, and it's the same tiny little road and yeah. uh, what they're doing for sewers. But could you, could you talk about some of the, the impact on Chinookville um, and, and also the, the link to the, possibly the Chinese Navy? Yeah, well, so, you know, as you say, Chinookville was always a pretty seedy town. But, and and now, now that, the same is true of the Chinese developments there, but the real devil is in the scale. You know, as everything with China, you know, it's, the sheer speed of of the developments there, the sheer numbers of of, of Chinese developers that descended on Sihanoukville, um, have as it's just totally overwhelmed the the, the city's planning regulations uh, and, and and infrastructure. Um, so it happened. I think you know I date it around to around the visit of Xi Jinping in Cambodia in October 2016, and it seemed like after that it was sort of permission had been granted basically, or that you know um, that the Chinese government had sort of signaled that Cambodia was open for business. And you have this like, sudden flood of, of investors of all stripes into the country, um, which of course built on what was already sort of an increasing Chinese economic presence in the country. Um, the effect in Sihanoukville, you know, was, again, it was, it, was, it was totally overwhelming for many locals. I mean, people I spoke to there said that, you know, the, the cost of everyday goods had, had risen and, and rent had risen beyond what they could afford. People were forced onto the outskirts of the city. A lot of um, Chinese business people were opening their own grocery stores, even their own tuk-tuks, you know, to drive Chinese tourists around. Um, my, my, and this my, basic... My Khmer yeah. friends in Siem Reaper in the tourist industry were incensed at the idea that there were Chinese tuk-tuk drivers on Cambodian territory. Right, I mean, right. Like, why, why they were just, they couldn't believe why would someone from China come to do this low-level job and steal, you know, food out of the mouths of uh, local Cambodians. 
Right, right. And, you know, it's, um, I guess that sort of reflects China's unique sort of development situation, which it is in some ways a developing country. It has massive, you know, swaths of, of rural China that are still, you know, not that far above the poverty line. And then you also have just this huge, you know, it is also a superpower, you know, and so you have this sort of really, um, and, and this mix, you know, exported to Cambodia has, has, you know, created a lot of disruption. And as and you say, you know, they're also sending construction workers down too, correct? As far as I know, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, especially as, as engineers and building, you know, um, uh, you know, overseers and so mm-hmm. forth. They, they do use a lot of Cambodian labor, you know, the grunt labor um, on the construction sites there. And I met a lot of young Cambodians who'd gotten jobs in casinos and on construction sites, um, um, you know, who were, you know, in some ways positive about the opportunity that they were getting. But, um, you know, the casinos brought in as, you know, they've attracted a very low quality of Chinese tourists. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I lived in Chiang Mai for a couple of years and people would complain about the Chinese tour groups there, but they were, at the end of the day, they were basically ordinary people who wanted to go off and have a holiday. They were, they, they might've been a bit rude in, in the eyes of some Thai people, but they were generally, you know, good people. What you see in Sihanoukville is you see a lot of organized crime. Oh, yeah. When I went there, I saw groups of young men with buzz cuts and black t-shirts walking around smoking acting, you know, very, you know, very rudely toward Cambodian vendors and, and, and um, street sellers. Um, and there was, you know, there's a huge amount of drugs that came in, um, sex work, um, you know, you know, a lot of these, you know, young men would, would act as if they ran the place basically, mm-hmm. which in certain sense they, they did um, at the height of the developments there. Um, and the reaction, you know, among the Cambodian population was very negative. I mean, as you say, social media was used to communicate, you know, outrage at sort of Chinese drivers that would breeze through red lights in cars with military plates. Um, you know, there were, you know, the, yeah, the, the sharp increase in social problems like, you know, street violence and uh, prostitution and drugs, all of these things, you know, excited a very negative reaction from the Cambodian public. And as you say, we're seeing something that has been relatively rare in historical terms, which is the sort of this, this anti-Chinese sentiment, this Sinophobia emerging in Cambodia. Um, there are signs that the, both the Chinese and Cambodian governments are aware of this and are, um, you know, taking measures to sort of clamp down on online gambling, which of course Beijing hates gambling. And so is, is you know, is, uh, you know, and, and the Cambodians have, um, you know, um, promised to try and clean up Sihanoukville. And of course with COVID, which has sort of brought everything to an end there, at least temporarily, it remains to be seen what the future of these, these developments is. I mean, it right. could be that in a I mean, few years, right, we walk right through before, the- Right before COVID hit, the, um, wasn't there a reform or a, a ban of online gambling? Yeah. And suddenly there was this mass exodus of yeah. the Chinese gambling industry from Shunukville. And I, I heard reports of these huge towers suddenly abandoned. Right. I mean, well, in, in a few years- there's a good chance we'll, we'll go to Sihanoukville and, and sort of this abandoned casino tourism will become a thing, you know, um, it, you know, the, but we don't know. I mean, that covered um, online gambling operations, right. um, but whether, you know, casinos remain open there, um, you know, yeah, look, it really remains to be seen. I mean, the, the COVID recovery is such an uncertain, you know, right. such an uncertainty at this point, but um, I think we can say with confidence though that, you know, China will continue to be a, a dominant economic presence in Cambodia. 
But I do think the Chinese and Cambodian governments are working to curb the most negative impacts of these developments mm-hmm. in the interests of preserving what for both is a very beneficial bilateral relationship. Um, and, and there's there's strategic or military components to this as well, right? Right. Well, there's there's been a lot of talk recently about um, China eyeing off a military presence on Cambodian soil, which would be which would violate the Cambodian constitution, which which um, uh, states that Cambodia is a you know is a neutral state. Um, we haven't really got smoking gun evidence. So there's two, there's two locations that have been the subject of, of the allegations. One is a, a, a large Chinese tourism development in Kokong province, which is about 50 kilometers up the coast from Sihanoukville. And that, um, you know, a lot of attention is focused on a deep water port and international airport that are being built within this project. Um, you know, we don't know for sure that these are being built with the intention um, you know, of hosting Chinese military assets, but you know, a lot of people have observed that they could easily be turned toward that function. Um, though, of course, potentially, just about anything could be turned in the event of a conflict could could be converted for military right. use. So it remains a little bit unclear. We really don't have a smoking gun. We've got a lot of speculation. The other site is the Riem Naval Base, which is is on the other side of Sihanoukville on the coast, and that. Um, the Wall Street Journal reported last year that the Cambodian and Chinese governments had signed an agreement to give the Chinese Navy access to that base. Um, uh, we don't really know, again, firstly, if this agreement was actually signed because the, they, you know, the, the journal apparently obtained a draft of the agreement. Um, and secondly, to what, what sort of access the Chinese would get there. I think a lot of the discussions of this, of this issue have sort of, um, Elided the distinction between sort of access to the base and the construction of a Chinese base on Cambodian soil. Um, but, you know, um, a lot of people in Washington are, are paying very close attention to, you know, this potential development, which is, you know, in some ways it's sort of an irony to go back to what I talked about before, you know, for years, Cambodia was ignored basically. And it was treated as a place where, you know, democracy promotion and um, uh, human rights issues loomed large. Um, and all of us, you know, and I think the argument I make in my book is that, you know, this pressure has been one of the main incentives that's pushed Prime Minister Hun Sen toward China. And now that he is close to China, people are discovering that, hey, actually, Cambodia is not as unimportant as we thought. I mean, if the Chinese gain a military um, you know, access to an airfield on Cambodian soil, I mean, that, that sort of redraws the strategic map of mainland Southeast Asia in many ways. And so, you know, um, I think that what we've seen recently is the American government adopting a more pragmatic position on Cambodia. The, the current ambassador there has, has done a lot of good work to try and re-engage and to get relations back on track. And we'll have to see how things develop. But, you know, unfortunately, in Washington, Cambodia is now seen pretty much through the lens of its closeness with China, um, with not a lot of thought given to the sort of failures of American policy that have brought us to this point or helped bring us to this point. Mm-hmm. How about, how about Thailand? Um, I mean, you, you mentioned the impact of Chinese mass tourism in, in Thailand, and um, that's another area where social media has reported some of the bad behavior of, yeah. of, uh, of Chinese tourists on vacation. Um, what's the relationship with Thailand and, uh, and the PRC? Well, I think, you know, Thailand, you know, one of the, the main sort of things that conditions Thai relations with China is that it doesn't, well, it doesn't share a border with, with China. You know, I think having a border with China is, is, is as Myanmar and Vietnam do, and of course, Laos as well, um, you know, that brings you into uncomfortable proximity. Um, but in Thailand, there's sort of, you know, 
Thailand shares Cambodia's historically accommodative view of, of Chinese power. Um, you know, one sort of reason for that, of course, as well, is that the, the Thai business and political elite are, you know, many of them are of Chinese extraction. Um, you know, Bangkok in the 19th century was a Tiu city, you know, to a large extent. Um, and, and so there's a certain sort of comfort with China, if not, you know, um, sort of loyalty towards it. There's, you know, that, that sense, of, sense of threat that you see in Vietnam and to a certain extent in Myanmar doesn't really pervade the Thai um, public consciousness, consciousness to that extent. And um, I think Thailand, because it is a relatively strong economy um, and, you know, has been able to sort of set the terms of its relations with China in a much more effective way than the, the Laos and Cambodians have. Um, and so, you know, of course, Thailand also has a very uh, nimble diplomatic tradition. It's always been very good at balancing um, outside powers against one another. And so what we've seen, you know, is, is the, uh, you know, a quite, um, you know, ductile sort of diplomacy toward arising China and, 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 you know, and, and balancing it off against the United States, its treaty ally. Um, but you know, although the, the current uh, junta in uh, in Thailand doesn't want to hear anything about democracy, of course, or uh, or uh, liberalism uh, from the United States right now, and and China, right. is, you know, as with Cambodia, China is a, uh, a benefactor that's not going to preach to them. Yeah, and that's a sensitive issue in Thailand. I mean, the Trump administration, admittedly, hasn't been doing much of that. Um, but the, you know, the Obama administration's re- reaction to the 2014 coup was, you know, it, it again, you know, while, Th- while Thailand was never colonized by a Western power, you know, it, its sense of national identities in some ways, you know, um, emerged in opposition to sort of that, that, that Western imperial challenge. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a great deal of resentment amongst, you know, Thai elites about, you know, Americans or other Europeans lecturing ties about, you know, on questions of, of democratic principles. Um, and that, you know, that led to a sort of tilt toward China after the 2014 coup when the U.S. disengaged from a lot of military exercises and the EU canceled um, negotiations into a free trade agreement and, and so on and so forth. And, and China was sort of the understanding friend that, that, that moved into the breach and offered and, and sort of just said that it respected you know, all, you know, Thailand's right to, uh, it's a, in, conduct its inter- internal affairs in a way, um, in the way that it wanted to. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I, I've, I spoke to a number of Thai politicians and, you know, the, 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 the overarching sort of line was that, you know, China's easy to deal with. You know, we've got our concerns about China, but there's not this constant friction in the relationship, which, um, you know, which at least in that Obama era there was with the United States. I also think that, you know, the relationship with the United States, you know, the alliance was a Cold War alliance. It was forged um, in the 1950s. Um, it was the two countries were united by common fear of communism, um, you know, which brought them very close together. And this, of course, was further reinforced by intermarriage, migration, military to military ties that were, that were intimate. Um, but since the end of the Cold War, I mean, you know, the, the alliance has sort of been in a state of drift. You know, um, and I think that the rise of China as an important economic partner of the, of the Thai government um, uh, has, you know, means that, you know, the interests of the United States um, and Thailand uh, are, have begun to diverge to some extent. Thailand has a very strong 
stake, um, as do leading Sino-Thai conglomerates in maintaining good economic relations with China. And so, you know, the, the sort of um, the American push to Southeast Asian nations under the Trump administration to sort of detach themselves from China and say no to China has not found a very amenable um, audience in Bangkok. Um, right. Of course, the current protests in Thailand, you know, throw an interesting, um, you know, new factor into the mix. You know, the, the calls for the reform of this, the institution of the monarchy, which, of course, the United States helped support um, and, uh, and reify in the um, years after the Second World War, mm-hmm. is... Um, you know, it, it, it could realign things. But, I, you know, I, I also think the Chinese are pretty nimble. Uh, you know, they, if, if whatever happens in Thai politics, I think China will be ready to, to sort of shift course as need be. But at the moment, it's capitalizing on sort of, you know, firstly, the tensions with Western countries, but also just the, the lack of attention from a lot of Western countries toward Thailand, which is right. kind of remarkable considering its, its economic centrality to the Mekong region. Mm-hmm. Um, moving west uh, to Burma, Myanmar, um, and you describe this as, uh, you know, uh, possibly China's California, a way to, to get a, a west coast, so to speak, for China, mm. access to the Indian Ocean. Um, what are China's strategic uh, interests or, or dreams uh, for, mm. for Burma? Well, as far back as the mid-1980s, you, you, you see Chinese strategists talking about you know, building an Irrawaddy corridor, or, you know, or, or you know, an overland route. Um, which was, which which, was the, the old British dream. I mean, this is the, the three Burma yeah. wars where the British trying to find a back door to China, correct? Yeah. And now China's using that as a, you know, as a, I guess, a front door to Myanmar. It's sort of, it's reversed all of those ambitions, but this, the, the dream of integration and trade, you know, is very much, you know, the same. Um, and, I think there's, you know, the, it, it serves a number of functions. But the first thing is, is a direct overland route to the Indian Ocean is a, one means of China circumventing the Malacca Strait. Uh, and, and so there's, you know, the two oil and gas pipelines that run from the Myanmar coast through the interior of the country to Yunnan province, which we've built over the past decade. Um, you know, they are, they are one, you know, indication that, you know, Myanmar plays as an important piece of the puzzle in terms of China um, securing its access to energy. Uh, it's, you know, it's also, um, you know, it also plays an important role in sort of, you know, giving China, diversifying China's access to international markets. Um, and of course, you know, all of these, you know, the government's main goal in, in, uh, Myanmar right now is to push forward this China Myanmar economic corridor, which is, which is the, the rubric under which it goes now. Um, which of course itself is nested under the Belt and Road Initiative, um, and you know, but gaining access and sort of developing um, uh, China's inland provinces and giving them more outlets to the world is really, um, you know, has been the the other important goal of the Chinese government. And um, you know, Myanmar serves both of these functions: energy security and 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 development of the southwest of China. Um, and, uh, you know, they've gone a decent way toward achieving it. Um, but, you know, one of the, you know, one of the problems, the challenges that the Chinese had in Myanmar is that when the country opened to the world in 2011 and 2012, all of a sudden China, which had enjoyed a more or less uncontested um, sort of influence in Myanmar to that during the years of the military junta, 
all of a sudden was forced to compete with the United States, European governments, the Japanese. Um, and, you know, there was a, again, there was sort of, this period was accompanied by increasing political freedoms, which led to increasing numbers of Myanmar citizens to criticize China openly uh, in a way that they wouldn't have been able to do under the old junta. And so um, China sort of saw its interests, you know, um, shunted aside to some extent. Um, what we've seen, however, since then is that, you know, as human rights issues have once again, um, you know, detonated in Myanmar, especially with the, the Rohingya in the country's West, Western perceptions of Aung San Suu Kyi and the Myanmar government have soured once again. There's talk of the reimposition of sanctions. Um, there's been a lot of pressure on her government um, over these issues. And, and China has used this as an opportunity to regain lost ground. Um, right. As, as with Thailand and Cambodia, this is a regime that doesn't want to be preached to from the yeah. West about liberal democracy. And one of the remarkable things, of course, is that a lot of the people who are very sensitive about this are also, you know, supporters of the NLD who benefited from international support for many years. And it goes to show that, you know, um, in some ways, nationalism is, you know, knows no political um, boundaries, really, in a lot of these places. I mean, people who are supporters of the NLD and pro-democracy are also incredibly nationalistic and averse to being told what to do by foreign countries. Um, you know, and governments also unscrupulously, you know, draw on the, um, you know, the colonial, they, they use it as an excuse, um, uh, for their own authoritarian behavior, of course. I mean, you know, but it, it is nonetheless a very powerful sentiment in, in just about every part of the region. Um, and yeah, the criticisms of Myanmar, um, over the Rohingya issue have, have led to, you know, Aung San Suu Kyi, who was already staggeringly popular in Myanmar, becoming even more popular still, at least among the ethnic Burman majority. Um, but, it, you know, it's, it's difficult because Myanmar, you know, it borders China. It's experienced, you know, large influxes of Chinese immigrants that have, real, that have, that have um, in themselves excited a strong nationalistic bash, backlash over the past couple of decades. Um, the Chinese, uh, the, the Burmese military and, it's, you know, and the government has an in, entrenched fear and suspicion of China. Many of the senior generals got their start battling Chinese-backed communist insurgents in the north of the country. Um, you know, Myanmar does not want to be uh, in China's orbit, but constructive relations with Western democracies have become increasingly difficult to sustain. And so, you know, while uh, Myanmar is... is wants better relations with Japan and India, which are two sort of traditional sort of um, partners, um, you know, that, you know, it's, that may not be enough. And, and one of the, you know, and this, this in turn touches on deeper structural questions about, you know, in the, the human rights issues that we've seen emerge over the last few years are, you know, just the latest in a very long line of conflicts and abuses that go right back to the country's independence in 1948. And many, in many ways, these are structural problems stemming from the country's, you know, the, the attempt by Burmese, Burman, ethnic Burman nationalists to sort of create a modern Burmese state around an ethnically Burman core. And we're, of course, we're in, we're in the hills, it's a, a slew of ethnic minorities in the hills that they've got. Right, right. That have been poor you know, control over. Right. You know, and, and, and the, the, the Union of Burma that was born in 1948 was something that had never existed as a unified state. Um, the, the hold of the various Burmese kingdoms over these outlying regions 
was very loose if it existed at all. And so what we've seen is the attempt to sort of build a nation around a, an ethnically Burman core has, has created this constant cycle, this perpetual cycle of conflict. So, and, and the, the reason I talk about this is simply to note that there's no good reason to think that this problem is going to end anytime soon, which in turn creates, ensures that the complications with Western countries are going to be ongoing. And, and of course, China's approach is very pragmatic. Um, <clears throat> it also has close relationships with a lot of the ethnic armed groups that control large swaths of Northern and Eastern Myanmar. Um, including regions lying along the Chinese border. And so we're likely to see, um, you know, uh, China, China's influence, even as Myanmar tries to sort of pull away and balance China's um, weight, you know, the China having a, a very important, prominent region in this country for many years to come. Yeah. Um, let's, let's move on to Singapore, um, which is so unusual and so unique for so many reasons. Uh, it's a, an island nation. Uh, it is uh extremely wealthy compared to its neighbors extremely mm. wealthy by by international standards i mean i i can't afford to visit there anymore yeah <laughs> and you know we've all seen crazy crazy which rich asians which is a celebration of that uh, that wealth um and it's got a, a chinese majority population mm. um so how does how does singapore understand its relationship with china singapore has always been yeah i mean it's the question of singapore's Chinese-ness has been a central, you know, factor in its relationship with China. Um, you know, I, I, it's, well, let me, I, I think it's, it's, well, it's firstly important to note that Singapore's birth as a modern nation in 1965, its expulsion from the Federation of Malaysia was largely to do with its, um, the, the question of ethnic parity and, and, and um, you know, what role, um, ethnic Chinese would play in the Federation of Malaysia. Um, and, you know, when Singapore was, was shot into independence unexpectedly in 1965, it, you know, it found itself surrounded by um, two Islam Muslim majority nations, Malaysia and Indonesia that, you know, that were inclined to view it just as they viewed their own ethnic Chinese minorities as a, as a sort of fifth column for Beijing, which is always a slightly strange accusation given that Lee Kuan Yew was such a staunch anti-communist. Yeah, but it's, but it's, it's this vibrant center of capitalism. Why would you assume right. this is a fifth column of, of international communism? Well, and I, I guess it just goes to show the, you know, the emotive question of the ethnic Chinese, you know, in Malaysia and Indonesia, which of course we'll talk about, I'm sure shortly, yeah. but you know, Singapore was incredibly careful in, in sort of um, asserting its own identity. And, and emphasizing the fact that it was, a, it was, it was its own thing. It was not a, a proxy of China. For instance, you know, for one, one expression of that is that when Lee Kuan Yew met with Deng Xiaoping in 1978, you know, he insisted on speaking in English, not in Mandarin. Um, uh, and of course, um, uh, it did not recognize Singapore did not recognize the PRC until after every other member of ASEAN had done so. So it wasn't until 1990 that Singapore had official relations with the PRC. Um, and so, you know, S Singapore has been, um, yeah, as, 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 has treated its relations with China very delicately, but at the same time, it's, you know, even before it had formal relations, um, the Singaporean leaders could see that China was going to grow and they um, were, um, determined on uh, to benefit from China's economic emergence. And so you see from sort of the late 70s onwards, 
the beginnings of sort of um, economic relations between the two countries. And Singapore selectively leveraged its ethnic Chinese uh, nature to benefit economically while also emphasizing its Singaporean nature, you know, when, wh whenever China got the wrong idea. Um, what we've seen in recent years, I mean, one, one subject of, of, of tension, of course, is that Singapore also has a special relationship with the United States. It was one of the most, you know, supportive, probably one of the few supportive nations in Southeast Asia during, um, you know, of the American deployment in Vietnam. And um, when the Americans closed the Subic Bay Naval Base in 1992, Singapore accepted, uh, you know, it was, it was willing to host American naval assets, and et cetera, et cetera. They expanded um, the, the, the port in Shanghai, right? Yes, uh, exactly. Uh, to, to accommodate the Nimitz class Nimitz aircraft class carriers. Aircraft carrier, right? yeah. um, and so, you know, but in, in an age of increasing, you know, U.S.-China competition, Singapore has found itself in a difficult position. And one thing that's come through in Chinese criticisms of Singapore's positions on the South China Sea um, is this sort of this sort of sense that as a Chinese nation, Singapore should, or as an ethnic Chinese majority nation, Singapore should naturally sort of defer to Chinese interests. And this perception of Singapore as Chinese, you know, resurfaces again and again between the lines of a lot of Chinese government rhetoric. Um, in fact, we talked about great state autism earlier. I mean, this is one of the prime examples of China's great state autism. This, this sort of civilizational view of Chineseness is something that, you know, is not a, that transcends national identification. And of course, this has been historically one of the main sources of anxiety in Southeast Asian nations about ethnic Chinese populations that they 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 have loyalty to the motherland, and that, you know, that they that, yeah. Although not not all Chinese are Chinese in the same way, right? I mean, it's of course it's a large place, and the um, the community in uh, Singapore historically is not Mandarin speaking. It's um, yeah, uh, and they've got very very different uh, uh, sort of cultural origins, not just language but food and so forth. Um, right. And then there's this in the past few years, there's been arrival of increasing numbers of um, PRC nationals uh, right. immigrating and, and create. So what, what sort of cultural tensions develop amongst the, the Chinese of Singapore? Um, well, as you say, you know, Chinese is Chineseness is, is a very modern construction. Most of the Singaporean, um, you know, the immigrants who came to Singapore in the British days from most of them from um, the Southern coast of China probably wouldn't have seen themselves as Chinese in the modern sense of the term. And these are people that, would have identified themselves by clan or dialect group or, you know, region of origin. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, in, in the present, what you've had is, um, you know, you have the Chinese government sort of um, on the one hand, sort of premising a lot of its cultural outreach to Singapore on, on the basis of this sort of shared cultural affinity, which, you know, a, a situation in which, cultural questions and political questions are never quite um, separated from each other. And then you have, you've also had like large numbers of, um, uh, of, of PRC citizens moving to Singapore. And of course, the reason for this is the Singaporean government's desire to prop up the country's sagging birth rates. You know, Singaporean, Singaporeans are, you know, among, have one, Singapore has one of the lowest birth rates in the world. And I think a lot of that has to do with sort of the, the sort of industrious um, career-focused sort of culture that the People's Action Party, uh, Lee Kuan Yew's party, has has 
sort of inculcated in the Singaporean population. Um, and of course the cost of living, right. Um, <laughs> makes it hard for people to have kids. Kids but are in order expensive. To, I, I know this. <laughs> right, right. And, and one of the, you know, one of the Singaporean government's approaches has, you know, in terms of building a Singaporean identity is to keep ethnic balances, you know, stable. So, you know, they've, you know, there are certain percentage, there's a certain percentage, the ethnic Chinese make up about three quarters of the population. Then you have smaller populations of Malays and Indians. And the government has sort of tried to keep those three, um, proportions stable. And, but the problem is when, you know, because ethnic Chinese birth rates are lower than Malay and Indian birth rates, they've had to bring Chinese in from abroad. Um, and you know, another reason that they've, they've pursued PRC Chinese is because, you know, Singapore has promoted Mandarin as a way of unifying its Chinese community into a sort of single whole. Um, there's also economic benefits as well of promoting Mandarin. So, you know, as a result, when you travel on the Singaporean metro system, you see, you know, the names of the stations are written in simplified Mandarin or simplified mm -hmm. um, Chinese. Uh, the, that is the form favored in the mainland. And so, um, you know, the influx of PRC citizens in some ways is, you know, has had a paradoxical effect. On the one hand, you have a larger number of permanent residents and citizens of Singapore whose attachments to Singaporean identity may not be as strong. Um, especially, you know, given the, the Chinese government's sort of influence operations designed to sort of convert um, the loyalties of ethnic Chinese Singaporeans into support for key Chinese state goals. Um, and on the other hand, though, you know, the, the Singaporean public, especially the ethnic Chinese Singaporean public has come face to face with um, Chinese from the mainland and, and discovered that they're really not very alike in culture, you know, social mores, um, you know, um, five, six, seven generations of, you know, of life in Singapore has taken, you know, the two peoples in very different directions. And yeah. so, you know, you see in some ways a heightening of Singaporean um, identity, in, you know, in, in places where people have come face to face with, with PRC nationals. Um, but, you know, th this is, this is, I think is, is probably one of the most serious, uh, the Singaporean government, views this as one of the most serious issues that is, is the attempts by China to sort of leverage ethnic Chinese political and cultural, uh, cultural and um, ethnic affiliations and turn them into, um, you know, support for Chinese state initiatives and for the broader strategic goals of the Chinese state. And so, you know, this is something we've seen to a certain extent in all parts of Southeast Asia, but Singapore, given that it is a majority ethnic Chinese state has been subject to a considerable amount of this. And, one enabling factor, of course, is the promotion of Mandarin. I mean, the fact that Singaporeans, you know, um, you know, can w watch Mandarin TV stations from the mainland and that, that, that it's kind of created a linguistic bridge that enables right, right. this sort of influence operation on a, the part a, of the a Chinese soft government. power inroad. Right, exactly, which um, might not have existed had Singaporean, um, Singapore's ethnic Chinese population continued to use its dialects, um, uh, or at least not to the same degree. Um, um, so yeah, Singapore finds itself in a difficult position. I mean, it's, 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 it's got the, probably the only country in the world that has a special relationship with both the United States and China. Yeah. But, um, you know, that the, the, the status of those two relationships is increasingly in tension. How about just across the, uh, the water to Malaysia where we also have a significant Chinese population? Well, Malaysia's been, 
you know, has, has been relatively, you know, friendly toward China um, over the, you know, since the since it established relations in the 1970s. Um, China does tr- more trade with Malaysia than with any Southeast Asian nation. Um, and, you know, they're, it's... Malaysia is the, the number one trade partner for the PRC? Yeah, as far as I, as, as far as um, my memory serves. Um, but of course, you know, there, we talk about um, China's relationship with Malaysia. I mean, it's really inex- inseparable from Malaysia's own internal racial dynamics. And of course, Malaysia in some ways is the reverse to Singapore. In Singapore, you have about a 75% ethnic Chinese. In Malaysia, it's about 25%. And, you know, really this, the demographic challenge posed by Chinese immigration under the British, especially in peninsular Malaya, which, which by the eve of the second world war was nearly majority Chinese, um, has, you know, really affected, um, the development of Malay nationalism in profound ways. And to the present day, Malay nationalism has been about, you know, sort of rebalancing power away from economic and political power uh, away from the ethnic Chinese and, 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 and ensuring, you know, the uplift of the Malay people after a sort of, you know, the, you know, um, there's this sort of pervading fear that the Malays will become strangers in their own land, which of course, at one point, you know, they, they nearly did become a minority. Um, and so, you know, China's always, there's always kind of, it's always connected the question of China is always connected to this, to this fear. Um, what we saw, you know, we saw this, you know, right before the 2018 election when, um, you know, Prime Minister Najib Razak had become very close to China. Um, as it turns out, you know, the fact that he was involved in a globe-spanning historic um, graft scandal attached to the 1MDB Sovereign Wealth Fund, um, you know, really sat, you know, destroyed his relationships with m- many Western governments. And, you know, uh, what we've learned afterwards is that a lot of the high priced infrastructure deals that his government signed off with, um, with China, um, were designed specifically to sort of help plug the holes, um, the debt and, uh, to pay back the debt that had been incurred by the, the theft of the pillaging of one MDB. And so, you know, we saw the 2018 election being, you know, a strong sort of China angle to the election. Mahathir, uh, the former prime minister who won election again in 2018 at the age of 92, I think he was at the mm-hmm. time. Um, you know, he, he ran very much on a, you know, on a platform that was highly critical of, of these Chinese deals. And, um, you know, and, 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 and drew explicit, um, parallels with the, you know, the loss of Singapore in 1965, because it was dominated by ethnic Chinese, you know. Um, I opened my chapter on Malaysia with a visit to Forest City, which is this massive Chinese real estate project on the Strait of Johor across from Singapore. So I have to ask you, is this, I don't know if you saw the the presidential debate uh, with Trump, where he started talking about a forest city, and it was some incoherent statement about a forest city. And, and, Many people on Twitter were trying to figure out what on earth he was talking about. Do you know if he was referencing this? Oh, no idea. I, I, um, I didn't yeah. hear that part of the debate. Yeah. Um, I, I, so, okay. I don't, I don't want to derail us, but I, I, I think that that may have been it. <laughs> yeah. And of course, he couldn't place it anywhere in the world because, well. Yeah. I mean, it's, look, 
who knows with Trump, right? But, um, but yeah, the, the Malaysian forest city was, you know, this massive multi-billion dollar project um, that was un- his first phase had sort of been opened when I went to see the showroom. It was quite impressive. I mean, um, just the size of it. Um, but it, it was exciting some concerns because, you know, uh, condos in this project were, um, were, were too expensive for most Malaysians. And there was a fear um, that that was basically going to be populated by ethnic Chinese, uh, by, by Chinese nationals, um, cashed up Chinese nationals looking to escape the smog of China's, you know, Eastern metropolises and, um, and retire in a, in a Chinese, you know, at least partly Chinese speaking, um, uh, nation, you know, that was close, close by. Um, and Mahathir made a big point of, of hammering away at Forest City, which again, he, he drew explicit, when I interviewed him in 2018, he drew explicit parallels to Singapore. Um, and I think, you know, this, this court, you know, this played an, you know, an important role in, in the election of 2018, this sort of Najib had sort of due to his domestic problems had sort of had become over-reliant on China and had signed off on huge multi-billion dollar infrastructure deals under the Belt and Road Initiative that really didn't serve Malaysia's interest. When I was there, I heard a lot of comparisons to the Sri Lankan port at Habantota, the sphere that Malaysia was taking on way too much debt. A a debt trap. Right, exactly. That was very much in the air um, six months before that election um, when I visited. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, it's, you know, and at the same time, you know, Mahathir was, you know, spearheaded Malaysia's, you know, the development of Thai during his first term, um, which lasted from 1980 until 2003, spearheaded the, the, you know, creation of a close economic relationship with Malaysia. And, and I think that um, what we saw after his election was him dialing back some of that rhetoric and actually, you know, um, you know, uh, in, instead of some projects were canceled, some of Najib's big infrastructure deals, but others were renegotiated. Um, I think that he, you know, sort of, he recognized as he did in the 1980s and 90s that China was very important to Malaysia's economic future. Um, and he wanted to maintain that, that trade, um, the trading and investment partnership. Um, and I think this sort of, this sort of touches on Malaysia's sort of general position toward China, which is, is, has been, you know, it's, it's, it's interested in doing business. And, and even the South China Sea disputes have not affected a flourishing trade relationship with, with China. Um, and, and, and in fact have been compartmentalized quite successfully by, um, successive governments. Um, yeah. Um, I think so. That's, that's sort of the overview. I mean, there has also been, you know, we've also seen in Malaysia tensions to do with China's relationship with the ethnic Chinese community. And, And one particular episode I describe in the book is the Chinese ambassador at the time, um, I think in 2014, um, you know, making a public statement in Kuala Lumpur's Chinatown that, you know, China's not happy with the treatment of ethnic Chinese in Malaysia. But of course, he sort of elided the distinctions between ethnic Chinese in Malaysia and Chinese nationals who happened to be residing there. Right. And, and this, you know, excited a, you know, a, you know, a fierce backlash from, you know, from, um, many commentators in Malaysia who, you know, who, who accused China of sort of transgressing on a promise that it made in 1974 when the two countries established relations that it would cease to meddle with the loyalties of ethnic Chinese. Um, 
of course, you know, China backed the the um, the Communist Party of Malaya, which was a majority Chinese communist movement, mm-hmm. um, which 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 accounts, I think, for uh, many historians believe accounts for its failure um, to you know, in comparison with Vietnam's communist movement, for instance. Um, uh, but, you know, there is, there is, I think this, this question of China's relationship with the ethnic Chinese is going to continue to be probably the most sensitive issue in, in China-Malaysia relations and, and is a far more sensitive question than the South China Sea. You know, if you talk to ordinary people on the street, um, ordinary Mala- ethnic Malays in Malaysia, you know, it's, people don't really care about, you know, the, James Shoal or, or these sort of um, remote parts of, of, of the Southern South China Sea. They're more concerned about, um, you know, these, 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 these pervading Malay um, fears about, you know, ethnic Chinese um, right. taking and, over, you know, and, and controlling the country and, and holding the country's destiny in its hands, which right. of course couldn't be further from the truth today than, you know, uh, but that's, a per, you know, a pervasive feeling in Malaysia. And, and we see a similar fear in, in Indonesia, where we have uh, another long history of, of Sinophobia and, right. um, you know, examples in 98 of um, uh, horrifically violent outbreaks of anti-Chinese mm. uh, violence. Um, right. So what, how, how does, what's the relationship between China and Indonesia today? How do the, how do the um, Chinese and Indonesians negotiate this relationship? Mm. It's well in, in no other country in Southeast Asia is, is the is the status of ethnic Chinese in Indonesia more uh, important than in Indonesia. I mean, you know, in Malaysia, ethnic Chinese are still politically salient. You know, they, they make up a quarter of the population. And, and even though that that proportion is slowly shrinking, which could augur difficulties for ethnic Chinese in the long run in Malaysia, um, the fact that they m- you know, make up just a tiny percentage of the population in Indonesia. I mean, the, the, the figures vary, but it's anywhere between one and 3%. And, and I think that, you know, um, uh, you know, the fact that they are, have historically been also, you know, um, economically dominant there as elsewhere has led to a, a huge amount of fear. Um, you know, right back to the colonial period, there's been concerns about this. And, in, you know, the development of Indonesian nationalism really, as in Malaysia, it sort of develops in, you know, as it comes in contact with Chinese nationalism and, and, and Chinese nationalism as espoused by overseas Chinese um, residing in, in what was then the Dutch East Indies. So, you know, this has really, it's pervaded Indonesian nationalism from the very beginning. Um, uh, not all Indonesian nationalists have been anti-Chinese, of course, but there, you know, there has been a, a vocal minority that have, um, that have kind of depicted Chinese as sort of, alien to the national community. And of course, in, in both Malaysia and Indonesia, religion plays an important role too, because, you know, ethnic Chinese, very, very few are Muslim. Um, you know, in, in mainland Southeast Asia, um, the fact that Buddhism is the dominant religion has provided a path toward assimilation, which doesn't exist to quite the same extent in, in um, Indonesia and Malaysia. Um, but, you know, basically since Indonesia's independence, its relations with China have been, you know, have traced the, the the changing status of ethnic Chinese within the country and vice versa. I mean, um, it's, you know, under Suharto, um, you know, the, the Chinese were so feared um, or, or China was so feared that um, ethnic Chinese were, you know, were serious restrictions were placed on their, you know. No, it, was, uh, it was palpable. I mean, I, I first visited Indonesia in 1990 and that was when, 
you couldn't have uh, shop signs in Chinese. Um, you right. Allowed to bring in uh, any printed material in Chinese. Um, there was a real anxiety about them. Yeah. Yet, at the, even though there were these uh, anti-Chinese uh, uh, policies, at the same time, the Chinese business elite was mm. really powerful, right? Right. Well, and of course, for Saharta, this was a, a useful way of doing things because you know this he, he was able to compartmentalize his financial backers um, from you know his political support. Um, and he could sort of ensure that, you know, none of these ethnic Chinese um, business leaders would ever challenge him politically. They would, you know, they, they benefited economically and they were happy to benefit economically from their relationship with him. Um, at the same time, he could sort of keep, uh, you know, uh, Pribumi, you know, native Indonesian um, uh, competitors at bay, and, you know, prevent anybody from challenging him politically. They, they, they so, could have political power, but they would never amass the wealth. Right, Whereas exactly. The Indonesian Chinese could amass the wealth, but were excluded from political power. Exactly, and so it, it sort of created a situation in which, well, you know, you know, ethnic Chinese tycoons became intimately associated with what, by the mid nineteen nineties, had become a you know widely hated regime, especially once the Asian financial crisis hit. Um, and of course, you know, um, when that did happen, there were you know powerful, there was factions close to Saharto that found that. Um, directing the mob's anger against ethnic Chinese was a politically expedient way of diffusing that anger and preventing it from being directed against themselves. And so, you know, you saw Chinese, you know, probably the most recent, well, it, it is the most recent example of, you know, violence and pogroms against ethnic Chinese. Um, um, and, you know, since, since 1998, since those, those riots and, and um, pogroms, there has been, you know, the Indonesian Chinese community as in other parts of Southeast Asia has, um, been able to express itself more openly. I mean, when Suharto fell, you know, the Cold War was over by that point, and a lot of those strictures against Chinese participation in certain professions and the restrictions on the Chinese language and Chinese culture were dropped. Yeah. Um, you know, and and a lot of these official um, uh, restrictions went away, but there's still sort of a you know um, a vocal minority um, uh, associated increasingly with sort of. Islamic fundamentalism. Yeah. Yeah. And, that. And the, the transformation is, is just astounding. So in, in North Jakarta and, and Glodok and, and uh, in some of the other Chinese uh, neighborhoods and in various Indonesian cities, it, it's, it's stunning now. You see Chinese in the street and there's these open displays of cynicity that were unimaginable mm. in the 1990s and the first time I was there. And I, I, I taught in uh, Gajamada in Jogjakarta um, a number of years ago, and the Chinese holidays are on the, the calendar now. Right, and again, right. Just unimaginable. At the same time, um, not to out anybody, but um, I was having a conversation with some of my graduate students who are very cosmopolitan, fluent in English. They're at Gajamada, you know, one of the top universities in Indonesia, in getting master's in American studies. And somehow the subject of... Um, one of my graduate students' husbands, who is ethnic Chinese, came up, and they immediately started trafficking in these odious uh, sinophobic stereotypes. That, yeah, um, were really just sort of devastating to her, and she just had to sort of suck it up. And it it just reminded me of you know anti-Semitic uh, discourse mm. in, in in Weimar Germany or something. Like it was, it it was there, and it didn't didn't take much to scratch that surface for that to come out. Even right. though things were so much better for Indonesian Chinese than they had been, right, twenty years ago. 
Yeah, and and I mean, one of the sort of concerning developments recently, as you know, has been the, the sort of rise of Islamic exclusivism, which also embodies a very strong anti-Chinese charge. And, and you know, what's, you know, even more worrying in a sense is the sort of concerns about China, the People's Republic of China, and concerns about ethnic Chinese within Indonesia coming into alignment, you know, and I, I interviewed a leader of the FPI, the, the Islamic Defenders Front, who explicitly made the connection. You know, he said that um, Ahok, the, the, the former um, governor of Jakarta, who was jailed for blasphemy in 2017, that he, you know, and Jokowi, his former uh, boss um, in the Jakarta town hall, what, you know, were basically, you know, a front for, you know, the importation of, of, of Chinese into Indonesia and, and China's sort of imperial design on Indonesia. And so, you know, I think that this, you know, this is, these are trends that are very worrying, you know, given the history of discrimination and, and violence. And as you say, the sort of very, um, almost reflexive nationalist sort of, um, you know, suspicion of the Chinese, ethnic Chinese, um, you know, these things are, you know, uh, you know, will, will be, continue to be a problem in relations. And I think that the, the Chinese government is always going to be suspected of, of sort of trying to, you know, it's all, its actions will always be seen in Indonesia through the light of these anxieties about ethnic Chinese and, and, and their supposed hold over Indonesia. Um, yeah. And so I've, I've heard all sorts of rumors of, you know, thousands of Chinese laborers coming in to build right. roads and, and other projects. And there's this, just this incredible anxiety about uh, about China and its influence, both both in terms of capital, but also in terms of labor. Yeah, yeah, um, and it's and and you have sort of, you know, I I think this is something that's going to inhibit China's influence in Indonesia, or it sort of puts a limiting a limit on it. Um, it also, um, you know, could potentially you know backfire against ethnic Chinese, um, given the the you know again the long history of discrimination and violence that they faced. Um, I think that um, the Chinese it seems like the Chinese embassy in in Jakarta is pretty well attuned to this, um, but. Uh, again, you know, there are enough ultranationalists in Indonesia who are willing to see Chinese plots around any corner, every corner. And so, you know, um, as we saw with, you know, Jokowi was accused of being, um, you know, a, well, firstly, a communist and secondly, Chinese, you know, the two, of course, being very closely aligned in the imagination of, um, of, of a lot of Indonesian nationalists and demagogues. Um, and of course, you know, politicians, this is something politicians can draw on in a democratic system in order to gain votes. And then that's what we saw against Jokowi is that Prabowo Subianto was very, or, in, or his campaign at least, and um, was very, um, you know, drew on these themes. Um, and, uh, you know, it, you know it's, it's, a, it's a worry. Um, but, you know, in general, Jokowi has been very in favor of Chinese investment. I mean, he, I think that he particularly has seen China through the lens of his domestic agenda, which has been to sort of improve Indonesia's infrastructure and get its economy going. He's not somebody who really cares about foreign policy. Um, and so we've seen, you know, a kind of, you know, a very pragmatic approach toward China, which, you know, it's sort of been reflected, you know, by all the Indonesian governments since Suharto. Even Suharto in his last, you know, his, his last few years, you know, the economic relations with China, um, you know, he started to see China as, as a potential benefit uh, in, in economic terms after, after um, vilifying it and demonizing it for so many years. Uh, um, 
And so, yeah, I mean, there's a, but I think, you know, one of the problems that Indonesian leaders have is that they're so self-absorbed. And I mean that not in necessarily a negative sense, but Indonesia is a very difficult place to govern. It's, it's messy, it's sprawling. The the question of uniting this fissiparous collection of islands into a nation state is a project that's very much ongoing. And, um, you know, I mean, recently the the fact that there is still separatist sentiment in, in West Papua and um, you know, the, the fact that Aceh took a, a tsunami to end the Achenese mm-hmm. war for independence, you know, really tells you that, you know, that the nation is very much in a process of being made still. Right. And this, this sort of draws the attention of Indonesian governments inwards and prevents them from sort of, you know, um, standing up against China as, which as the largest nation in Southeast Asia, the most populous nation in Southeast Asia, you know, Indonesia has often been expected to, um, to do. Yeah, no, I, th- I think of uh, Max Lane's uh, book. The title is "Unfinished Nation," and it's still a nation right. in the making. So, la- last stop on this tour would be the Philippines under Duterte, mm. uh, and the sort of the radical change in Filipino foreign policy under mm. Duterte. What, um, what? <laughs> as always, the question with Duterte is, <laughs> what on earth is going on here? Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. It's, it was one of the more challenging parts of the book to write, to try and get a handle on exactly what, you know, because really you're trying to get a handle on a personality. Um, and um, I think the first thing, you know, the first thing to say is that, you know, Duterte's, you know, relatively friendly stance toward China is, is, is less the outlier. Really, you know, since 1975, since Marcos opened relations with China, you know, you know, every Filipino administration has become, you know, has traded more and more with China. Relations have improved over time. The one outlier was the Aquino administration that preceded Duterte, which took a, you know, and that was obviously, that administration witnessed a lot of frictions with China and the South China Sea. You know, the um, standoff over Scarborough Shoal in 2012, and then of course China's subsequent um, reclamation and dredging of artificial islands in the Spratlys, um, sometimes within, within sight of features claimed by the Philippines. You know, and, you know, the Aquino administration was, you know, took a very um, strong line on that. Um, he compared China repeatedly to Nazi Germany and um, that his was also the administration that filed the, the suit against China, at the, um, the um, permanent court of arbitration in The Hague. Um, and so in some ways, Duterte, you know, is, is, is less the outlier. Um, but I think what we, you know, so having good relations with China itself is not, even though the Philippines is probably the most um, pro-American nation in Southeast Asia, if not the world, um, you know, is not itself a, uh, you know, necessarily an exception. But, you know, what we've seen with Duterte as well is, you know, firstly, he's, you know, the, the human rights situation in the Philippines is, is deteriorated significantly under Duterte, particularly his war on drugs, which has led to, you know, huge numbers of deaths. I mean, I've seen figures up in, you know, more than 15, 20,000 people have been killed. Um, you know, more, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's the largest, you know, I think someone described it as the largest peacetime loss of life since the Khmer Rouge. I mean, we're talking about like, mm. Um, and obviously that's really damaged his relationship with Western countries. But again, you know, when he's come under criticism, he's, you know, basically extended a, a middle finger to Western governments. I mean, he insulted Barack Obama in vulgar terms. Um, I did the same with the Pope when the Pope um, made comments about what was going on there. And so this in, you know, a, a staunchly Catholic nation, right? Um, and and so th- there's been that element to it as well, that China sort of gives him the, the, the sort of non, um, you know, doesn't really non-interfering sort of mode of engagement that he would prefer. 
Um, and you also have sort of a, you know, he represents sort of, a, in some ways, a minority opinion in Philippine history, which is sort of this anti-American um, tendency, which is, you know, often associated with the political left uh, to which he is associated to or has in his past, um, you know, which has viewed the, you know, the American relationship with the Philippines, both during the colonial period and since as, as sort of a, you know, as demeaning to Filipino national pride, you know, that, that the Americans, you know, still have a sort of colonial like hold over the country that, uh, and that the, you know, the Philippines has never managed to sort of break free of, of the American yoke. Um, and coming from Mindanao as well, he has this, you know, he, he embodies the sort of region's memories of, of the atrocities committed by American troops at the start of the 20th century um, during the war of pacification um, that preceded the conquest of the Philippine islands. And so, you know, he brings together several strands that have created a, that have, that have really, um, you know, as well as being sort of a given to hot tempers um, and, uh, you know, um, harboring resentments um, that has given rise to this sort of turn toward China. Um, and uh, like Jacoby, he, he has looked toward China for infrastructure funding and, and, and in order to sort of support his domestic agenda of, um, again, of improving the Philippines infrastructure and, and getting its economy back on track. Um, but, you know, he's, he's faced a lot of opposition from the, from the security and defense establishment in the Philippines, which is broadly pro-American. Um, uh, and it probably comes closest to sort of reflecting the prevailing hostility toward China that we see in Washington nowadays. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, you know, I, I think with Duterte, you sort of see a mix of method and madness. You know, I think there is a sense amongst some of his foreign policy team that the Philippines can't simply rely on the United States, that it needs to be more proactive and that, you know, taking a strong line against China uh, in 2012 and 2013, you know, kind of brought the Philippines the worst of both worlds. Like it didn't do anything to affect China's behavior in the South China Sea. And it also cut the Philippines out of participation in the Belt and Road Initiative, which of course was announced the same year in 2013. So I think, you know, Duterte's, you know, uh, the, the problem is his policy has also just been in, 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 in practice incoherent. I mean, his position on the South China Sea is veered from tough talk about, you know, riding on a jet ski out to some, <laughs> you know, um, coral shoal to plant the Filipino flag and all this posturing to these sort of, you know, sort of like praise of China and President Xi Jinping, you know, and, and it, it's very yeah, hard yeah, to... He almost kowtowed on his trips to Beijing. I mean, yeah, yeah. And, and, and the superlatives just come flowing out of him. Right, right. And I think a lot of this has to do with his, his personality and his lack of impulse control. But it's, you know, I think there's also a certain hedging instinct in his, in the way he's going about things, you know, that, that uh, you know, he is also attempting to sort of play these powers off against each other. But, you know, it, it's very hard to discern. Um, yeah. But, you know, it, 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 he has put on the table a lot of, well, he's broken a lot of taboos in, the, in Philippine foreign policy, you know, about the American alliance being sort of the bedrock of Philippines mm-hmm. foreign policy. He's, you know, he's threatened to cancel or repudiate key elements of the alliance and, and I think really called into question, um, you know, um, where, you know, to the extent to which the Philippines and the United States' interests are aligned. Um, and, and, you know, that, that I think, and I think that to, to that extent, he, he also reflects the opinion of others in the Filipino foreign policy elite that, you know, they're, they're you know, people don't want the, the Philippines, 
doesn't want to become the front line of a shooting war between China and the United States. And so it also, like a lot of other Southeast Asian countries, has you know, a strong interest in these two powers learning to live with each other. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll see. I mean, it, it, it's because this is so heavily dependent on Duterte, you know, it's going to be fascinating to see who succeeds him. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, if it's his daughter and, and the Duterte movement, which seems to still be considerably strong, you know, very strong movement, his popularity ratings are, are still up in the 80s, low 90s percentage points, despite his positions on China, which are unpopular. Um, you know, a, a Duterte ally would give China another six years to sort of, you know, uh, work with, I guess, in terms of trying to, um, you know, achieve its, you know, um, its, its, its goals. goals in that, that region. And, um, you know, we'll have to see. Yeah. Well, this is, this is also fascinating. I feel like we're just, just scratching the surface. I could go on for another hour or two with you. I mean, this is fabulous, but before we let you go and, and again, thank you for your time. Um, before we let you go, can you suggest two books to the audience that they should consult? Oh boy. Um, well, I'm trying to, I didn't really get a chance to think about this before. So I, maybe the first book, you know, is, is, you know, a great one that I, I read, um, while I was finishing off this book, um, and I managed to quote it a couple of times was, um, Maoism, a global history by Julia Lovell. Um, yeah. I mean, this is, this is a, a wonderful, um, examination of sort of the global impact that Mao and his ideology and his image, um, had, um, throughout the world. And, um, I think it really, you know, it offers a, a very interesting contrast with the present, you know, in terms of, you know, there's a lot of talk about, how China is sort of seeking to export authoritarianism to the world. And, and I, I kind of make the argument in my book that that, that doesn't, doesn't quite get it right, that, that China is really working with authoritarian realities that exist in Southeast Asia and sort of trying to harness them to its own ends. But I think, you know, that point is, comes into greater relief when you read a book like this and you really see the extent to which China was, you know, was, was and Chairman Mao really led a global ideological movement that, mm -hmm. that made inroads from, you know, sub-Saharan Africa to the dorm rooms of, you the know, Berkeley, British you and know. American universities, yeah. you know, um, and, um, you know, to places like Cambodia, you know? Um, and so, yeah, that, that, that's, it's one of those really sort of beautifully researched and written books, you know, that you can just really lose yourself in. Yeah, um, Julia Lovell's work is just fantastic. Yeah. I, I, in fact, I, I've been meaning to go and track down her, her older books and, and have a look at, I think she wrote mm -hmm. one on the, the opium war. Am yes, I correct yes. in saying? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, so the second book, I'm trying to think um, of what have I read recently? <laughs> you know, I apologize. <laughs> no, no, okay. Well, let's, let's just say your book on Hun Sen. Oh, well, I, yeah, sure. <laughs> just, sure. Of course. I'll, I'll answer the question for you. your book on Hun Sen. So, um, now, um, finally, what are you working on now and what can we hope to, uh, see from you next? Well, I'm taking a bit of a break, you know, a book is a, a huge investment of energy and, and it's sort of like you get, to, you know, I get to the end of one and I, you know, the, the prospect of starting another book project just, it almost makes me a little bit, uh, uneasy <laughs> in the stomach. So, um, it's funny, your mentality when you start out is so different from your mentality when you finish. Um, and, uh, I think I'm going to take a bit of a break, you know, and I'm, I'm just sort of working away at my day job at the diplomat and, um, you know, keeping in touch with, you know, with Southeast Asia. And, well, where, where you know, can I, you find your writing right now? Will we, you'll have pieces in the diplomat? Yeah, well, I, I blog daily at the diplomat. So if you go to, um, you know, our webpage, you, you, you'll find my, my work there. 
Um, that's most of the writing I'm doing now is there, but I'm also on Twitter. Um, and I, you know, I'm constantly commenting on, on Southeast Asian events and, um, current affairs and culture. Um, and, uh, you know, now and then I, um, you know, I give talks of various kinds, mostly related to the subjects we've been discussing. And on my website, I, I, you know, have a list of upcoming talks. Um, some, you know, a lot of which are open or are publicly available. And of course, in this era of zoom, it's, it's very easy to tune in remotely. Um, that's actually COVID-19 has had a wonderfully democratizing impact on the, uh, the brown bag talk at the uh, elite universities. Like we can log into talks at Harvard now that hadn't right. been available six months ago. So yeah. Yeah. It's sort of a silver lining, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, hey, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And this is a fascinating book. Thanks, Michael. It was a pleasure. So this has been a conversation with Sebastian Strangio about his newest book, In the Dragon's Shadow, Southeast Asia in the Chinese Century, published by Yale University Press in 2020. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening. And we are... Great. <laughs>